Welcome to episode 181 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm Markham Hislop, energy and climate journalist and publisher of Energy Media. Today, I'm going to be talking to Aaron Cosby. He's a development economist with the International Institute for Sustainable Development, co-author of Setting the Pace, the Economic Case for Managing the Decline of Canada's Oil and Gas Production, and somebody that I follow on Twitter uh, because I enjoy his take on oil and gas issues. So welcome to the interview, Aaron. Markham, it's always a pleasure to be here. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun today because this is makes for a lively debate. And whether the uh, whether we should manage the decline of Canada's oil and gas production, as your report argues, uh, Premier Danielle Smith, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith and the oil industry argue we should expand it. And there's another uh, report that came out from the Public Policy Forum, which is kind of a think tank funded by a lot of the big corporate players uh, and other players uh, in Canada. And they basically argued we should decarbonize oil and gas production in Canada and then let the market determine when it when it uh, can't compete anymore and kind of ride the market down, I guess, is would be their, their argument. So there's three models for the future of Canada's oil and gas industry. Could you maybe address those and explain you know, give us a, a take on your argument. I'd say that the last two arguments are not too, all that dis- dissimilar. The idea that you can expand or maintain existing production and uh, save that future production from the global repercussions of demand drop by decarbonizing, that's all one in the same package. And let me address that in, in two ways. First, to say that it, it doesn't matter if we... It, decarbonize our uh, our oil production or our gas production because our customers don't care. Our customers want reliable quantities of the same quality of crude that they are capable of refining in the Midwest and Gulf Coast refineries that are specialized to take our sour heavy crude. And they're not too curious about how it was produced. Let's put it that way. Neither are the customers to which we're increasingly shipping oil through the Gulf Coast in India, China, and other Asian customers. They don't. They're not. They are not eco consumers. Uh, so the, the 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 myth that we can preserve market share uh, for Canadian producers by decarbonizing it is just that. It's a myth. That's interesting because I had an interview with uh, economist Kevin Byrne of S&P Global, and uh, I've been interviewing Kevin for many, many years about oil sands, greenhouse gas emissions. And he argued uh, that the you can see global oil markets starting to grapple with pricing uh, emissions intensity of a barrel of oil. Uh, it's very early days yet. Don't know if it's going to be successful, and if it is successful, how widespread it will be. But he said you can see it. And S&P Global, in fact, uh, is investing in his work and expanding his department because they think that that knowing the carbon and having a good handle on the carbon intensity of crude oil will be a big advantage. Well, it'll be necessary to to uh, if the market decides to price emissions intensity and. So, plus then there are border carbon border carbon adjustment programs that have been already coming in, in in Europe, and and the U.S. and Canada have talked about it a couple of years ago. They were they were talking. I haven't heard much about it since then, but they've been talking. 
So are you com- are you completely discounting the possibility that sometime in the near to medium term future, uh, emissions intensity of crude oil won't be or will be will be uh, will be priced? Well, look, a couple of things. I'm aware of the work that Kevin's doing, um, and I know that they are betting on the fact that uh, in future, global oil will have the carbon emissions, embedded carbon emissions priced. I don't see the signs of it that he's talking about. If you talk about the European carbon border adjustment mechanism and the, the border carbon adjustments that other countries are considering, they are focused on a clutch of upstream sectors like steel, aluminum, cement, chemicals, not oil and gas, specifically not oil and gas. It doesn't work that way. If you're talking about um, uh, clean fuel standards, which w- would affect Canadian uh, uh, prices or Canadian production if the U.S. adopted one, there's no way that you would get a national clean fuel standard in the States that would raise the price of gas for U.S. drivers. That would be political suicide and cause economic pain for Midwest refiners. That just isn't in the cards. If we look at eco-labels, and I've looked at a lot of eco-labels, they are typically applied to agricultural goods. They're applied to stuff that you can buy in the grocery store. They're not a, a, a fundamental a staple good like gas. And they're easily distinguishable. Uh, you can trace it back to the farm. Tell me how at the pump, you're gonna trace back to the producer, the actual emissions intensity in a blended product that. To, that was refined in a, a Midwest refinery, you know, went into a pipeline from a bunch of different producers, went into a refinery from a bunch of different sources, and then makes it to a retail pub. Tell me how that's going to happen. It's not. Okay, fair enough. That's the argument against. Um, well, let's talk about an argument that uh, you and I do agree on, and that is we're going to see peak global peak oil demand uh, by the end of the decade. And I, I've been following this, you know, the peak oil demand debate for a long time now. And I think the, you know, the preconditions for peak demand have now arrived, which is basically the exponential growth of, of electric transport. Because transportation uh, consumes 50% of all global oil. As you note, uh, 27% is for passenger vehicles. But we're already seeing the uh, electrification of medium uh, duty vehicles such as delivery vans, and it won't be long before we see the electrification or the move to zero emission, primarily hydrogen, uh, uh, heavy duty vehicles. Uh, you're already seeing it in things like uh, graders or mining trucks, that sort of thing. But you'll see it soon enough in long haul trucking. Uh, Alberta, in fact, is running a, a, a test right now uh, with two hydrogen equipped class eight semi trucks uh, over the next two years. So I agree with that. The question is going to be, what will be the, the impact on Alberta, well, Canadian oil and gas producers, 80% of that is produced in, uh, in Alberta. And I think 80 or 85% of that oil is from the oil sands. So we've really got two, two grades of oil here, light, sweet, crude, and sour, heavy crude from the oil sands. So what's your take on, on demand for those as we approach peak oil demand in 2030. The key is what happens to global prices. So we're going to see, um, and and we assume in the report that there's going to be pressure on OPEC plus discipline, which will result in Saudi Arabia not being able to stem the tide of oil production. When you start seeing those 
terminal declines in demand and, and at a significant level. So you're going to see lower prices. You're going to see volatile prices. That is going to affect Canadian producers, even if they do sell into captive markets in the Midwest, which, which they're selling to now, even if those are the most efficient refiners in the States and will probably be the last to cut production, which is true, we're still going to feel the pain, feel the pain of lower prices. Uh, and, you know, my colleague or my friend Kent Fellows has argued that there's a lot of oil sands production, which is still viable at below $45 a barrel. Absolutely true. Not so true of conventional producers. And we have a lot of conventional producers. Not so true of the high cost oil sands producers. We have a lot of them. But here's the problem. Even if you do have a future in which there are some profitable oil sands producers chugging along at less than $45 a barrel, we're not interested in oil production for the sake of oil production. As a public policy issue, we're interested in oil production because it gives us jobs, it gives us government revenues, it gives us investment. That future sees none of that. You're going to see no greenfield investment at less than $45 a barrel. Jobs are going to, going to accelerate their terminal decline, which we've been experiencing since 2014. Uh, and investments, you know, royalties are going to go down because profits are low, because prices are low. That's the key about that scenario. Yeah, let's talk about, let's put some numbers on this for listeners. Uh, Alberta ha alone has lost 48,000 oil and gas jobs since 2014. And that, uh, and a lot of that has to do with um, the digitalization of operations, uh, AI and it's remote sensing and analytics and all of that. Um, the, there, the conventional oil production in, in Alberta is about 500,000 barrels. And I think the Canadian production overall conventional is in the 800, 900,000 barrel, uh, barrel a day range. And the, uh, but I'm curious to know what you think the break-evens are for conventional production, because I haven't been able to suss that information out yet. Rystad publishes what they call a break-even oil price or individual Canadian producers. And the the average for conventional production, I'm going off the top of my head here, is low 30s. Um, so that's a low break-even price. It's not as low, you know, for comparing break-even prices, it's nowhere near as low as the Middle Eastern producers who have much greater reserves than we do. But it is lower than U.S., Russian, uh, uh, other producers, other major producers, slightly. Um, so, you know, that there's your break-even price. However, that that's a that's a price at which you can continue to operate. Uh, you're paying off your variable costs. Uh, you're not making it's it's not a price that encourages further investment. I'll, I'm just coming back to my previous point here. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, you know, conventional uh, production requires continual investment uh, uh, capex in in new production in drilling new wells. Uh, which you're not going to do uh, with uh, with lower prices. So presumably- Right, over it's, it's, over it, that's a really important distinction. So the oil sands producers, their decline rate is almost zero until they actually run out. And that's going to be a long time from now. Your conventional producers have a 7 8% decline rate, depending on where they are in the life of the asset, right? And so you have to keep drilling. You have to keep investing in increased production. That's the kind of investment, that's the kind of jobs that just aren't going to happen in that, that scenario. Right. Um, what about, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm kind of curious about your view 
of global oil markets because you know you were talking about the saudis they're at about eight dollars uh, a barrel for production costs uh, norway's under 15 uh the uh, u.s shale uh which what are they making now 11 or 12 million barrels a day somewhere in, in that range and a lot of their costs are up in the 35 40 45 dollars a barrel range so the it would it would look like the conventional uh, oil here, but it would be competitive. But then on the other hand, um, they have they have higher shipping costs. So if if you were to you know, like if the U.S. producers were were losing international market share and had to fall back on their domestic market, which is almost certainly going to start shrinking fairly quickly, then they ship a, a very short distance to market, and we have to ship. Uh, much further, and I think the uh, cost is in that nine to twelve dollars a barrel to get it to market now. So that's a uh, that's a competitive disadvantage, even though their cost might be lower. That's right. And, and let me just come back to a point. If we if we look at the intended or the estimated impacts of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, it's uh, projected to shave a little over two million barrels per day off U.S. demand for petroleum products by twenty thirty over a little over 4 million barrels per day by 2035 relative to 2021 consumption. Um, and those numbers are likely an underestimate because they were produced before California and other states had their announcements of uh, zero emission vehicle mandates, right? Um, so this is, you, you know, you, you made it as a side comment, but it's a significant uh, factor for Canadian well-being to, to understand that U.S. demand is going to be shrinking uh, going forward. Um, and yes, if the if it if it comes to that, if U.S. demand, you know, there's a separate answer to your question. If it comes to U.S. Uh, production only going to dem fill domestic demand, that's shrinking domestic demand because global demand is going down. We are at a disadvantage. Of course, we we are still the sole producers of the heavy uh, sour crude that the Midwest refineries, some Gulf Coast refineries, and some California refineries are set up to process. So they will still want that, uh, but of course, you know, in the long run, things are more fungible and 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 substitutable. In the long run, that doesn't bode well for our future. Right. So let's talk about about the heavy crude from the from the oil sands, and uh, I think the production there is up around three million barrels a day now, maybe a, a little bit more than that. And uh, most of it gets shipped, as you say, to the U.S. Midwest with some going to the U increasing amounts going to the U.S. Gulf Coast. Now, that's the interesting market here, because the competitors in the U.S. Um, are not the Saudis. They're not the, you know, they're the Latin American producers. So Venezuela, Mexico, Brazil and Colombia uh, primarily. Mexico was announced uh, a few months ago that they were going to with, be withdrawing all 600,000 barrels of Mexica, Mexican, uh, Mexico Maya uh, off the market. They were going to uh, refine it domestically starting in 2024. And Venezuela is still, <laughs> thanks to U.S. Missing sanctions. Missing in action. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, it's got to the point now where, where the infrastructure uh, is so damaged that even if you know Venice, suddenly the sanctions were listed, lifted tomorrow, they would have a very hard time get bringing any kind of significant production back on on board unless one of the big American companies, you know, stepped in with the capital. So Venezuela, it looks like it's going to be hobbled uh, in the near to medium term, and there's really nobody else uh, that can compete with the Canadians uh, to supply 
to supply more uh, heavy. So the, the argument there is, and this is why Kevin, uh, when he recently released the annual S&P's annual uh, oil sand supply forecast, is forecasting another 500,000 barrels between now and 2030 is because even though the, the market itself is not going to expand, uh, Canadian competitiveness within that that 5.5 million barrels a day of heavy refining capacity in the U.S. is going to is going to improve. That's right, and the the, the recent announcement by Mexico is just the latest in a, in a long trend of decline from the Mexican industry, and as you say, Venezuela has disappeared. So that leaves Canadians as the last supplier standing of that uh, heavy sour crude that the Midwest refineries have to use, the Gulf Coast refineries are set up to use, at least they are able to import, <laughs> Midwest is not. Uh, and as you say, less in, less in the Gulf Coast, a little bit in California. So we are still the, the suppliers of choice for those refineries. There's no, no question about that. We're somewhat insulated in terms of the, the quantities demanded. We're not insulated in terms of the price impacts from global demand shrinking. Right, those those prices are going to affect us no matter what. Uh, nor are we insulated, I would argue, in the long run from the decline in U.S. demand domestically, because eventually those those refineries, as you say, are going to focus on domestic market. And as the U.S. declines, and they're looking quite ambitious about their decline at this point, um, they will eventually feel the pain as well. So I want to make a, right. I want to make a couple of points. One is you often hear politicians in Alberta talking about how you know they, they even if they they look out at the net zero, uh, the IEA net zero scenario, which is twenty five million barrels a day of of consumption uh, by twenty fifty, down from a hundred million barrels a day today, and they say yeah, there's going to be lots of uh, lots of uh, demand for for oil. Excuse me, <laughs> you know, like all these other, like all these other suppliers, especially the national oil companies, because they, you know, the Saudis need eighty dollar oil uh, to pay for their for for their government, right? And and they're they're hardly alone. I mean, Nigeria and all of there are plenty of smaller producers who have absolutely uh, do not will not behave as rational actors in the market when when prices begin to fall because they can't afford to it, it, it's too important to their government revenues and 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 their economies and and all that does is make the argument i think that prices are going to be a volatile and lower yeah that, th those are our assumptions as well you're going to see th those national oil companies as you say have mandates that are broader than broader, more complex than the rational economic actors we see in uh, international oil companies. They include job creation. They include contributions to national uh, uh, reserves. So, when 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 we start to see that secular decline, you know, it's not just a boom and bust, and we're waiting for the next boom. We know that prices are going into secular decline post twenty thirty. When when that becomes evident. Uh, the phenomenon that some people have called the green paradox comes into play, and you see a rush to liquidate assets that everybody knows will be worth less in the future. Right? That's not rational as a group, but it's <laughs> it's a free rider problem. It's <laughs> it's a it's a, almost like a global commons problem, and the result is you have a breakdown in OPEC plus discipline. You have all of those uh, producers. That especially the African producers that are heavily over dependent on oil as a source of national revenues, 
churning it out as fast as they can because they fear even worse days to come. Well, for for the rest of the world, for global oil prices, that's a terrible recipe. And it, as you say, it, it uh, predicts increased volatility and very low prices. I want to tell a little story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Calgary and I was doing interviews uh, for the our Unethical Oil series, uh, I interviewed Professor Bob Schultz from the uh, Haskane uh, School of Business at the University of Calgary. And this is not, I'm not picking on Bob, right? This is, uh, I'm not making fun of him or anything, but we were in the course of conversation. He said, he he pulled out the Shell Sky 1.5 uh, transition scenario, which says that uh, I think it's a oil demand, global oil demand is going to grow to 130 or 135 barrels a day by 2040. And the point of this is, I mean, that that was a 2021 transition. It was based on the IEA's World Energy Report of 2020, which is based on 2018 and 2019 data. And we all know how much things have changed uh, since then. But here's the point. And this is why I'm telling the story. Bob said, but all the oil guys I know agree with Shell. So, (laughs) So here we have, here we have a scenario where a very, very good argument and all the evidence and all the trend points to peak demand in 2030, price volatility and price declines sometime in the early 2030s. And the leaders of the Canadian industry, the executives are talking about, no, 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 we think oil is just going to keep going for another 20, 30 years. And we're going to, we're, you know, we're all fine. And 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 they made a lot plenty of other comments by the way this isn't just Bob but you can see it in, in all the time in the in the in the in the Alberta media you know some CEO will pop up and say no 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 we're not worried about it they're you know going to have demand for a long, for a long long time yet there's a disconnect between what's happening on the uh, globally with the energy transition and the expectations around uh, expectations from Canadian oil companies there is and you know, part of the message of our report is that's not just a problem. If they're wrong, if we're right and they're wrong, that's not just a problem for oil companies and oil company shareholders. You, uh, a 2018 analysis by Mercure and uh, all uh, global analysis tried to calculate what the uh, loss of value risk was if we did have a uh, burst carbon bubble, if indeed there was a drop in global demand while uh, companies like the ones you just talked about continue to build infrastructure and increase production. And the global loss of value they calculated was anywhere between one and $4 trillion, depending on the assumptions you use. That's a comparable value to what we lost during the 2008 financial crisis. And they identified Canada as one of the most vulnerable countries, right? If, if we have a, if in their scenarios, if it's two degree uh, Paris target, if we achieve that, and there is a rush to sell off assets of the type we just described, we could, we are looking at, according to their estimates, a loss of 20% of GDP per year through the 2030s and 7% less employment nationally. Now that's, those are numbers which are scary. We're looking at, and considering the amount to which our financial institutions are invested in these sectors, Bank of Canada in 2022 did a a calculation of that six federally regulated institutions, major institutions, banks and insurance companies have an exposure of over $70 billion in the oil and gas sector. Considering that, 
we should be worried as a country. This is not just a risk that's being assumed by those oil companies and their shareholders, their investors. It's a risk for Canada as a whole if those companies continue to believe against all evidence that they can increase production, increase building in infrastructure, which will become stranded assets. Okay, let's talk about assets. Because um, right now I'm writing uh, very close to finishing part two of the unethical oil series. And it's about conventional oil and gas. And the estimate for the the cost to reclaim the liabilities is about in the 100 to 130 billion dollar range. Uh, right now, there are 82,635 wells in the suspended and inactive category, almost all of which will become orphans, almost certainly. On the oil sand side, there's another 130 to 150 billion, and that's conservative because we've never reclaimed the, the oil sands tailings, the oil, oil sands development covers 900 square kilometers up in the in northern Alberta where it's peat. And and Muskegon, we've never, nobody any place in the planet has ever reclaimed uh, that kind of, ter uh, of uh, land and ecosystem at, at that scale. So whatever, whatever number we come up with, it's almost certainly by an order of magnitude or two, too low. I, I think we, we have to assume that. We've just seen too many mega projects go over, over budget. Um, so here's the problem. Uh, in a minute, we're going to talk about your uh, report suggestions about, you know, phasing out an orderly phase out of the oil and gas industry. But there are $300 billion of liabilities. And how if if we just sketched out a market scenario where prices get volatile and drop, so presumably revenue and profits drop and free cash flow drops, so they have less money or no money, essentially to reclaim environmental liabilities. Now we're going to turn around and say, okay, and on top of that, we're going to phase you out over a period of time. Who gets, who's going to pay for those liabilities? Let me start by saying that to, you know, to balance against the kind of liabilities you just described, the Alberta's Orphan Well Association has $169 million in assets devoted to, to devote to that reclamation. So anyway, you, you see the major imbalance there. And the answer to your question is it's going to be the taxpayer one way or the other. There's no avoiding that. And the best we can do is to hope that and, and encourage that there is not more infrastructure build out that we will later have to clean up. If they, we have seen how little those players have devoted to reclamation of their orphan wells or even declaration of orphan wells with you know those that are really orphans in, in in practice during the high roller times that we've just witnessed over the last year it is a pit Pemina has done the calculations it's nothing uh, if they're not going to invest in it then they're not going to invest in it ever so if the question is as, as we uh, manage a decline of that sector what about those liabilities those liabilities are going to land on the taxpayer whatever happens uh, and you know it doesn't matter if we uh, force a decline in that sector with a heavy hand or let it decline by itself through market forces, it, the taxpayer is going to end up paying that bill. That's the well, unfortunate on, truth. On, on that cheery note, <laughs> let's let's talk about the four actions. And by, by the way, we're, we're going to do two more things here in the course of this interview. First of all, we're going to talk about the four actions that you think the government of Canada needs to take immediately to begin an orderly phase out of oil and gas. 
And then we're going to wrap up this conversation. I'm going to counter that with the argument that, uh, particularly with bitumen, uh, Alberta should be looking at transitioning uh, bitumen into feedstock for advanced materials manufacturing instead of uh, feedstock for fuels refining. And that then has all sorts of knock-on effects for the some of the points that we've raised here. So let's start with the, with the first one, which is those four actions that the government of Canada should take. Maybe you could describe those for us. Sure. So the first is continued progress on strengthening the climate policies, uh, and, and you know it includes implementation of the Canadian Sustainable Jobs Act and plan. Although it it has since been released, and it's a little bit of a disappointment. The second is support for subnational and additional gov indigenous governments plans and programs on economic diversification. And here I would broaden that to talk about diversification as a primary objective for uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland as a general proposition. And you know, it, I'm, I'm hoping we will have time to talk about some of the exciting opportunities that you can uh, imagine in bitumen beyond combustion in Alberta. The third is to align fiscal policy with the realities we've just been talking about, and that would include uh, stopping to subsidize in any way the fossil fuel sector such that it encourages an expansion of the infrastructure that we have just uh, forecast to uh, be at risk of stranding. And finally, to explore the tools within the federal jurisdiction to prepare for those fluctuations in production and use of oil and gas, what can the government do? It can't it can't legislate an end to oil and gas in Canada. That's a provincial responsibility. But what can it do to help us prepare for a future in which oil and gas is not the kind of driver of prosperity we see historically? Let me throw a, a, a this is a relevant point. Uh, I've made the argument for the last couple of years now that the, the Canadian government has given the oil and gas industry plenty of subsidies without having a clue as to whether the industry itself has any hope of being competitive past 2030, out to 2050. And, you know, the oil sands were looking for $50 billion for CCUS, and that, I hear, may still be on the table. I hope not, but maybe it is. But here's the point. So we know for a fact that the each one of the big oil sands companies has, has done its own modeling out to 2050, their own individual competitiveness. We, we don't know, there's nobody, uh, not the Canadian energy regulator, not any economist that I can find, has done any formal modeling of any of the Canadian oil and gas companies' competitiveness, you know, out to 2050, even out to 2030. We don't know that. And I asked the question of the uh, minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, the natural resources minister, essentially energy minister. And I said, of his office, I said, has the minister, has anybody shared that sort of modeling with, with the minister? And they danced around it and keep continue to dancing to, to today. Because, and, and I think that reading between the lines, a fair assumption is, uh, fair inference is that no, he hasn't. So if, if the federal government is putting tens of billions of dollars of public money into the industry with no idea whether or not it can be competitive beyond 2030, that's a problem. And I think that's one that that needs, I would think, needs to be rectified. I'm sure the oil companies have been sharing their uh, modeling results with the federal government bureaucrats when they lobby them. And I'm sure that they rely on the same kinds of assumptions that give you a demand of 130 million barrels a day by 2040, right? They rely on 
2018 IEA projections under stated policy scenarios that are completely unrealistic. I'm sure that's that's the case. Your broader point, though, is exactly right. If we, you know, if we do a realistic assessment of the competitiveness of those sectors past 2030 and come up with the kinds of questions and concerns that we've raised here, does it make sense to continue to subsidize that sector? Is that a valuable use of scarce public finance when we could be putting it into sectors which have a promising future in terms of generating uh, uh, government revenues, jobs, investment, incomes? You know, if, if, if we could be sinking that same kind of money into exploring and bringing down the costs of carbon fiber from uh, bitumen, or pyrolysis production of uh, hydrogen from uh, underground deposits of uh, 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 natural gas, you know, uh, or or horizontal drilling uh, to accomplish geothermal. Any of these kinds of wonderful potential economic uh, powerhouses that Alberta has, if we could be sinking that money into those instead, uh, wouldn't we be better off? So for my for my money, and this is my just my opinion, the the economic rationale for putting money into those oil companies is not an economic rationale. It's a political rationale. It's done precisely because of the unique politics we have in Canada and the need to placate Alberta within the federal constituency. But it is short-sighted. If Alberta comes to ruin, Saskatchewan comes to ruin, Newfoundland comes to ruin because we are ill-prepared for the demise of their economic powerhouses, that is not going to be good for national unity. I would agree. Nor national finances. Uh, the okay. So let's talk about some of these other end uses because you 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 seem to have opened the door to the possibility that maybe using uh, oil and gas for non-combustion uses is not a bad idea. Absolutely. Okay. So we've got the, we've, yeah. <laughs> so, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to you know I've done a lot of reporting on on that very thing. And, you know, Alberta Innovates, which has uh, developed the, is in the process and is only maybe a couple of years away, they, you know, scientists, their scientists tell me. Uh, and you can see some of those interviews, by the way, on our energy media uh, YouTube channel under the uh, energy, no, uh, energy takes uh, playlist. But they tell me that they're, they're a couple of years away from having a commercial process to create a carbon fiber precursor from bitumen. And it'll be about half the cost uh, and the same quality as the precursor that's currently used by the industry. I've also interviewed uh, at least one carbon fiber manufacturer. This one from Missouri is called Zoltec. And they keep track of what the Alberta Innovates folks are doing. They would build and the industry builds manufacturing plants next to the precursor. So you don't ship the precursor someplace and you you do it as close to the precursor as, as you can to cut down on transportation costs. And I asked, uh, uh, what is his last name is walk. It doesn't matter. Mr. Walk. I asked Mr. Walk, uh, would Zoltec in, you know, build a plant in Alberta? And he said, if they deliver on their promises, we absolutely would. Okay. So here's an opportunity to take now, admittedly only half of the barrel is, is of use the heavy end of the barrel. So you may be talking about a million and a half barrels. You can make a lot of carbon fiber out of a million and a half barrels uh, of that a, a day. And so that's one thing. Second thing, carbon captured CO2, the, the research uh, station uh, out by the Shepherd uh, Center, the gas, uh, the, the, the uh, energy center in Southeast Calgary. 
they tell me that they that Alberta is one of the leading jurisdictions for turning carbon captured, doing the research to turn captured CO2 into products, whether it's cement or whether it's vodka or cloth or whatever it is. But the to your point about where we should put money, what they both the scientists and from both of those uh, organizations have said is Canada. The moment Saudi Arabia or the U.S. or somebody with deep pockets notices what Alberta is doing, if there's a pretty cool economic opportunity here, they will outspend Alberta in a in a New York minute, and all of Alberta's uh, advantages would disappear almost overnight. So if we're going to invest in anything, why would we not invest in two sectors of the economy that could have enormous economic advantages and are vulnerable right now and need capital in, in the worst way. That seems to me we're we're spending money in the wrong place. I, I couldn't agree more. And a couple of things on that. One is the 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 composition of our uh, bitumen, because it has such a high asphaltine content, gives us a natural advantage that the Saudis can't compensate for by spending more money. So that that's one thing. And second, you're right. If we do start that kind of production, we then get the processing facilities moving to Alberta. And it's not something that this can't be offshored, right? And it wouldn't be offshored. Third, the size of the market we're talking about, if Alberta innovates is, is correct and they can bring the cost of production down where it's anywhere near competitive with structural steel, the size of the market we're talking about dwarfs the current markets we're contesting with our oil and gas, right? Um, and third, even if it doesn't get down to those levels, Bringing it down to half the cost of the, or, you know, the precursor down to half the cost of the current precursors means a much larger market than the current carbon fiber finds. Because when you make a product that has those kinds of uses cheaper, we will find more end uses for it. That's just how it works, right? So this is a major potential engine for development. Couldn't agree more with you. This is the kind of thing we should be sinking our money into. Yeah, and it 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 is a. Uh, I have to say that the uh, the government's view on this is curious, but the oil uh, company CEO's uh, reaction to the, all of this is even more curious because the oil sands companies, you know, a couple of them are putting a little money into this project and and they're kind of keeping their eye on it as maybe something. But this is not something that they see as being where they can deploy capital and scale it up. That That's a problem for them. Uh, but here's one here's one area they can, and that is closed loop geothermal, because that all depends on drilling techniques and many of them like Ever Technologies out of out of Calgary, which just is starting its first commercial project in Germany uh, this year. The they've borrowed technology and techniques and drilling rigs and drilling crews right. for the, the Germany project. And and it's all from the uh, steam-assisted gravity drainage, the in, in situ bitumen side of the of the oil sands. And this, I, I interviewed. In fact, I just posted it uh, this morning. An interview with Peter White of Rethink uh, Energy Research out of UK. And and his point is that oil companies and the big service companies like the Baker Hughes and, and people like uh, companies like that, they can scale stuff. They're really good at scaling stuff. And so if we could get 
you know, since we already have a champion at home that seems to be competitive and, 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 you know, is, it looks like it's got great prospects. If somehow we can get more of those and, and put the resources of the government and the oil sands companies and so on behind them, they could be, not only can they be scaled, they can be scaled at a global level. And the amount of, we could build the rigs, we could train the workers, we could, I mean, there's just no end of possibilities for that particular industry. And given the fact that it produces both hot water and you can turn that hot water into electricity, it is just ideal in so many applications. And so anyway, long story short, uh, one more area that has is the energy of the future and Alberta and Canada keep looking and focusing on the energy of the past. It's it's interesting, you know, if you think about the historical precedent of the oil sands themselves, they were the product of a huge provincial investment, uh, over a billion dollars in today's dollars by uh, Premier Lougheed, who, you know, bowled through his idea, his vision for making commercial the exploitation of oil sands in Alberta. Up to that point, it had been conventional oil. And the oil sand, this is in the 70s, the oil sand, you know this story, the oil sands producers, the conventional producers themselves were initially a little bit interested. It was sort of like the same attitude you de you're describing now for some of these new technologies, but then decided they weren't interested, actually pulled funding and were against the whole thing. It was against those conventional incumbent short-sighted interests that Lougheed plowed through the investment in uh, unconventional oil exploitation that paved the road for Alberta's current wealth. You know, it's a nice historical parallel. It, it is indeed. And did you know, Aaron, that because of that big uh, kerfuffle between Lougheed and the, uh, the oil uh, industry, that the premier was actually banned from the Calgary Petroleum Club at one point? <laughs> That's a good, I didn't know that. <laughs> so now he's revered. He's revered as the best premier that Alberta has ever had who has laid the foundation of the modern oil and gas economy and the modern Alberta economy. And, and But at the time, we forget that what a bitter fight this was. And as you say, you know, how bitterly the the uh, the existing companies fought against what he was, we was trying to do. And the problem we have here now is we can point to Lougheed and say they had the leadership. And they were willing, they had the strength of their convictions and they were willing to bull through and and make this happen in spite of opposition. And now what we have is essentially a government, Daniel Smith and the UCP, that are captured by the existing industry. That's a major difference between, you know, 50 years ago and and today. And and I don't I don't see anybody on the landscape because let's be fair, Rachel Notley is as almost as captured. You know, if, if Danielle Smith is hundred percent captured by the oil industry, Rachel Notley is 90% captured by the oil and gas industry. There's no difference but basically between their policies. And where is the champion who will rise up and articulate a vision for the future of the Alberta oil and gas industry post-combustion? The kind of stuff we're talking about. There isn't one. And there's nobody at the federal level who, I mean, God bless, you know, Jonathan Wilkinson and Stephen Gilbo and even the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, you know, they're supportive of the industry. They don't understand it. They don't get it. They don't, you know, they haven't lived in Alberta. That's not where they're from. They're not familiar with the industry. Somebody from somewhere has got to arise to provide the leadership to point us in a new direction, or this industry is basically toast, in my opinion. 
I, I agree with you, Ed, as I as I usually do. And I don't think captured is too strong a word for the current political leadership or the prospective political leadership in Alberta. I think the, the only way you're going to see the kinds of investments we're talking about here have to come from the feds. And and you know, it 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 doesn't it doesn't require them to even fully understand the the current sector. It doesn't require as much political courage in going against the incumbents as Lougheed had to summon up to say, here's here's what we're going to do. You know, we're going to focus on diversification. This is what the sustainable uh, jobs plan should have looked like. This is what SDTC should be funding. This is what the Canada Growth Fund should be funding. They should be putting money into this in a huge way. Right. And I'm still Agreed. optimistic that I'm Agreed. still optimistic that we will see that. Yes, I, I would agree. And, and really what we need is for somebody in Alberta to come forward and make the requests because the the Canadian uh, fund uh, sort of innovation funds, clean energy funds, clean growth funds are all essentially passive, uh, uh, passive funding agencies. You, you have to make an application. You have to champion it. And unless somebody does that, then then money will not flow into Alberta for these these various initiatives. And that's uh, again comes back to to leadership. And I and and I, I want to I criticize the the oil and gas uh, CEOs a little bit, but I want to really drive that one home. The current the current generation of oil and gas CEOs are pathetic. They they are. They have all modeled out to 2050. They think they're just going to ride off into the sunset. They'll all be long retired by the time that happens anyway. And not a one of them, not a one of them has the courage in the backbone to stand up at what needs to be said, not only on the energy transition, declining markets, where, you know, building a future for the industry, but also the enormous liabilities that they're likely to saddle the, the public taxpayer, both in Alberta and, and Canada. Because Canada, I'm quite sure, would not escape the uh, part of that part of that bill, and the CEOs uh, and and speaking of captured, the craven Alberta media that does nothing but echo them, the business community that does nothing but echo them, the you know on and on and on. Well, the is, AER, you've you've done great work talking about what the AER looks like these days. Well, if there was ever a captured, and but Professor Jason. Um, McLean, the University of New Brunswick, expert on on regulatory uh, capture. He said the the interesting thing about Alberta is not only is the was the a the energy regulator captured, it was set up to be captured, and reason for that is because the industry over the last seven decades has captured the culture of Alberta, the politics of Alberta, the business community of Alberta. It is literally it's and and, and he calls it I guess in the literature it's called cultural capture. And Alberta is so far down that road that breaking out of that box that they've got themselves into is a horrendously difficult thing for them. But if they don't, the prosperity of Alberta is essentially at risk. And if they don't act, they've maybe got five or 10 years, in my opinion, uh, then it's, you know, the snowball's rolling down the hill and you'll never get it back. I, I agree. We're, we're looking at cultural, cultural capture and there's there's two potential ways out of it that I can see. And the report that we recently produced is part of that. The first is an economic argument that says, look, here's what the future looks like and your prosperity depends on moving. It's not an environmental argument. It's not an argument that says the world's on fire and you got to stop producing oil. It doesn't do that. It says your economic future is at stake if you don't 
change your actions. And I, I think there's there's room if we keep hammering on that point. There's room for for some resonance and 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 coherence. And right? kudos, and the, kudos the to other... you, kudos to you guys for doing that kind of a report because that's exactly what's required. It's not a climate. It's not an environment that won't move people. Economics and jobs will. The, and the other thing that moves people is you've got to paint a picture, a realistic picture of a better future. You got to say, look, you know, those jobs, those jobs are going to be gone. I, we understand that, and it's going to be difficult. But here, we've got some ways that we think we can drive even better jobs, prosperity for the future. If we paint that clearly, there's another, you know, that stay stay tuned for the next installment of the project that produced this first report. That's where we're going next. Well, we're going to look look forward to that uh, eagerly, Aaron. And one of the reasons why, and I can talk about this a little bit, uh, we'll see how many people actually get to the end of our podcast and listen to this. <laughs> but as part of the Unethical Oil series, we're going to undertake kind of an education initiative uh, where we're going to get out into, you know, the universities of Alberta and communities of Alberta and talk about this very thing. And it, a presentation is divided up into two sections one is the first one is here's what the barrel of the gun you are staring down right it's essentially your the argument you've made and the reporting we've done for years and years on this topic but laying it out the energy transitions coming for your industry here are the consequences for it. and the second is going to be that vision here's what it could be here are the here's the opportunity if you do it right and and you know, if the oil and gas industry sticks around in some form or fashion, it has to be zero emission, not net zero emission, zero emission, and it has to be environmentally responsible, which it is not now. So got to fix those things and the environmental liabilities. But if we do that and then develop non-combustion uses, materials uses, hydrogen, all of that kind of stuff, we can, Alberta can actually have a far more prosperous economy than it's ever had. It can be a clean economy. It can be, it can be, you know, uh, workers are well-paid. Everybody makes lots of money. That's it, it what could, could be. And we it can be an economy, you know, moreover, that is not tied to a frigging roller coaster of commodity prices exactly like we've right. seen in oil and gas. <laughs> exactly right. Yes. I mean, manufacturing is far more stable uh, than uh, than commodity based uh, industries. So anyway, the I guess what I'm saying in here, I, I don't know if this is exactly a little announcement, but the, the energy media, we're going to try to be that voice in Alberta to put forward both the the, you know, sound the warning bells. Sound the sound the alarm on what's coming and, and the kind of stuff that's uh, outlined in your report, and then paint the picture. Here's what the future could look like. So you know, wish us wish us well, Aaron. It, it More will... power to you. I I wish you the best. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you very much for this. Very I always enjoy talking to you. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. Thanks. Such a good discussion. Thanks. Thanks.